listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofaro, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. There can be this assumption that if you were to get the news that someone you love is diagnosed with advanced serious illness, you'd spend every moment you could together. You'd have meaningful conversations and you'd express all of your unsaid thoughts and emotions. As you can imagine, though, it doesn't always go like that. For Marissa Bardak-Rammel, who co-authored the new memoir, The Goodbye Diaries, with her mother, Sally Bardak, it definitely went very differently. Marissa was 17 and a senior in high school when her mother found out that she had stage 4 pancreatic cancer and was given two months to live. Marissa, who was really close with her mom, totally retreated. She avoided talking to both of her parents and turned instead to school, music, and anything else that would keep her from the reality of what was happening. Then, when Marissa was a freshman in college, her mom asked if they could write a book together. Almost 20 years later, Marissa recently published their mother-daughter memoir, and in their alternating chapters, we get a clear window into how differently they were processing Sally's diagnosis, her treatment, and the approaching end of life. The process of writing the book helped Marissa find a way back to connecting with her mother, and they were able to reestablish a close relationship for those last few years of her life. Marissa, thank you so much for joining me on Grief Out Loud today. Oh, Jenna, thank you so much for having me. Your book, The Goodbye Diaries, which I tore through in about, I don't know, four days, which is, uh, never happens for me to read a book that quickly. And, and what I loved about it, it, it seemed like it gave us such a window into like your mom, into you, and then especially into your mother-daughter relationship. What, what would you want the world to know about your mom that maybe wasn't illustrated in the book? Um, I think so much of her is illustrated in the book. I think she was such a good person. It was hard to include anything that was that negative about her because, um, and it's not in that way about when someone dies and you think of them as so angelic. She just really had such a good soul and was so kind and had a lot of positive qualities about her that really drew people in. And a lot of what you hear about in the book is how warm she was and how all my friends wanted to open up to her even though they were teenagers and wouldn't open up to any other adult but what I tried to show were like little things that weren't perfect about her you know so in one scene in the book I'm talking to her about my current boyfriend and also this other guy that I'm in a band with that I like she tries to tell me that the guy in the band isn't smart enough for me it's such a mom, like a universal mom thing, right? Where like your mom always thinks she knows exactly who's best for you in a romantic partnership, whether you're a teenager or an adult. <laughs> They're usually kind of right, but also they might be wrong, you know, and you might have a better sense of who's right for you. The interesting thing about that part is that I debated omitting it from the book because I thought, oh, you know, what if you know, this is actually like a real guy 
who was in my life at the time, who's still a friend of mine. And I said, what if he's going to be offended by this? Um, and in the book, I defend him and I say, he is smart and he's going to be a famous animator. And now he is indeed <laughs> a, a really um, successful animator. And I had this conversation with him recently where he told me, you know, I read the book and I read that part about what your mom said. And it actually inspired me to go to L.A. and pitch some shows. And now he's moving to L.A. Wow. <laughs> so it had this really wild kind of impact that I I never would have guessed. I think maybe there is something just very human about showing the flaws in people. You know, it, I don't think it was right of my mom to have said that and thought that, you know, it kind of goes against what I, my own morals, even though she had such a strong moral code herself, but it did end up inspiring someone. That's amazing. So your mom, who was such a support and an inspiration to you, manages from her writing and from your writing to continue to influence people in that way. It's bizarre. Life is very bizarre. One of the things about your mom that really stood out to me in, in the book was that I mean, it seemed like she had gone through lots of parenting classes on how to be non-reactive to your child's <laughs> attempts to push her buttons. <laughs> so I love that you also included those times where she just like had to just speak her mind about something. I think that was not a parenting class as much as it might have been uh, something she learned while being a special education teacher. Mm. Um, she worked with a lot of young children who had very tough family lives and also had learning disabilities. And, and my dad was also, he was a middle school guidance counselor. And I think the two of them combined made for such ideal parents because <laughs> they just knew how to be so patient and how, how to really talk to us in a way where we would listen and see them more than just a nagging parent, see them more as someone who had wisdom to share. They also cared about what we said and about what we thought. And I, I think by them showing respect for us, we respected them and it was sort of this nice loop um, kind of thing. And, and a lot of that did kind of start to fall apart quite a bit after my mom was diagnosed. Um, I mean, I was always so close with my parents and, you know, my, my mom was kind of the mom that all my friends kind of wish they had or wish their mom could kind of be a little more like my mom where she was just very casual. She would like sit on the bed and talk to my friends and make it so easy to open up to her. And she would share things about her own life growing up that made us feel comfortable in that way. And, and then a lot of that closeness really fell apart after she was diagnosed. That part of your book really, you know, as somebody who's working with grieving teens and working with their caregivers, you managed to illustrate in such detail what it was like to be a 17-year-old and to get the news that your mom has stage four pancreatic cancer. And then your reaction, which was to distance yourself and to pull back and to pull away. Can you talk a little bit more like about your memories of that experience and like what sense you make of it now? Because that can be such a confusing thing, I think, both for teenagers and for the adults in their life. Yeah, I mean, I just remember this very visceral reaction um, 
where she came home one night after going to a doctor's appointment and it she had been going to several doctor's appointments, but this one sounded a little scarier than other ones. She said the doctor thought something might be wrong with her pancreas. And I'm like, pancreas? Like, what is that? And where is that again? And what does it do? And it sounds important. Eventually, she and my dad come home. It's already like almost eight o'clock at night. And they sit my brother and I down in the living room and tell us that she has stage four pancreatic cancer and that the doctor said she might only have two months to live. That night felt very surreal. I kept feeling like, is someone taping us and are we on some kind of show? Because like, I've seen how this happens on TV and in the movies, but like, this doesn't happen to us. Like, mm. and we're not the family who like, sits around and talks about things in this serious kind of way. So what are we supposed to do with all this information? Like, we're not the family this is supposed to happen to. I just remember after that day, I remember sort of the next morning, like getting ready for school, putting on eyeliner, trying to kind of mask all the emotions I had going on and going to school and trying to pretend like, like it wasn't happening, trying to just keep up the facade of being the normal teenage girl. In order to do that, I think I had to really push my mom away and say, you know what, if, if she's going to be dead in two months, like, why are we playing this game? Why are we going to have all these like, deep, meaningful conversations when like in two months, she's going to be gone? What was the point? So I really stopped speaking to her. I stopped going upstairs to her room to talk to her, which is something I would always do. I would just go to school, try to find a reason to stay after school, you know, go to, go to a yearbook meeting. And then I would just come home, eat dinner really fast with them and go upstairs to my room and just try to avoid both of my parents as much as possible. Because to me, that was the only way of avoiding these conversations that I knew my mom really wanted to have. She, I could tell she was kind of like waiting for her moment to start that conversation with me. And I didn't want to have that conversation. I didn't really want to accept that it was happening. What ended up shifting that for you? Because over time you did reconnect with your mom and you did have some of those conversations and could be pretty really present with her. I think a few things happened. One is that I couldn't really go on living that way. It was such a big secret to keep. I mean, the only person I told was my best friend, Laura. It was just too big and too heavy and, and too much of a burden to carry around not only the secret of this illness, but also this falling apart of my relationship with my parents. And when you're 17, that's a lot of your whole world is your parents. I mean, you still live at home. They cook all your meals. They do your laundry. <laughs> So some of it was that of just, it felt so terrible on the inside to try to maintain that every day. Like it just wasn't, just wasn't sustainable. No, it wasn't. And then the, the other thing that happened is that my mom outlived this two month prognosis. She um, went to see a much more specialized doctor in pancreatic cancer. And he said, listen, Sally, I've kept patients alive for up to 10 years. 
your job is to stay alive while we give you chemo and wait for the research to catch up. All of a sudden, there was this shift of like, hang on, we were told two months. Now he's saying 10 years. And oh, look, now all these months are passing. And it's been two months and three months and four months and five months. And she's still alive. And she still looks pretty good. And yeah, she's going for chemo. And she had to retire from teaching. But she's she's still here. And she doesn't look like she's going anywhere too fast. So <laughs> the reality of her prognosis changing certainly affected things. And then the other big thing that happened is that I went to college. That can be a time of getting some distance and that distance allowing you to all of a sudden miss your parents. And so the summer before I went to college, my mom used to do this very sneaky thing, another one of these like sneaky teacher moves where she, <laughs> I would go out at night with friends and she would just kind of casually wait up for me so that she was up when I came home. And like, maybe she had insomnia from the chemo or, or from the anxiety she had about her illness. But I think she was thinking, you know what, I'm just going to see if this works. <laughs> and, she, and she would wait up. And I remember the first time it happened, I like jumped down to my skin because like, it was like, why are you it's there, like midnight and I'm like, what are you, what are you, why are you at the kitchen table? Like, what are you doing? You know what though? It worked. It was just like, she kind of caught me in a moment where my defenses were down. It's kind of like the way they tell parents to talk to teenagers in the car. Cause like mm. you're in this enclosed environment, the kid can't go anywhere. And for my mom, it wasn't the car. It was because she was really a bad driver, so she would have been way too distracted <laughs> to have this conversation. And she never drove anyone more than five minutes away. Um, but, you know, it was these midnight chats. And then when I went to college, they continued where she would call me at midnight because she kind of knew I was up, probably like finishing up some homework or hanging out with my friends. My roommate would start laughing as soon as the phone was ringing because she'd say, you know, it's your mom. <laughs> and, you know, all these, all these other girls in my dorm are getting like, calls from boys who like them and I was getting calls from my mother <laughs> and but we all again it was it, she she figured it out like it was a time where we could connect and we would have these like hour-long talks almost every night it's I, I keep getting this image of your mom like <laughs> with a scared cat you know just putting the treat bowl out and sitting next <laughs> to it but like not making eye contact and really like throughout the whole book the your mom's ability to create a sense of allowance for you to have your experience and that she was still going to be there as you know as you sort of spun out in terms of spinning away from her but she was there just holding the other end like I'm here and how can I meet you where you are rather than forcing you to meet her where she was and I can't believe she was able to do that I mean there's a part in one of her chapters where she says like I want to give you know, Marissa time to come back to me in her own time when she's ready. But this little voice keeps nagging me saying, what if it's too late? I mean, she had to have such a leap of faith to say, I'm going to give her time to come back to me, even though I might not live to see it. I mean, I like I, I'm a mom now I have two young kids, I have a four year old and a one year old and I can't imagine the patience and the, the faith that that took to allow for time 
in a period where time was such an unknown. Let's let's talk a little bit too, because you know we've mentioned the book, and you talk about your mom's entries and your entries. Can you just for listeners describe what were the like the mechanics of this book? Because it goes back and forth between you as the narrator and your mom as your as the narrator, and how did how did it all come together? Um, I wish I could take credit for this idea, but it was really all my mom's idea. <laughs> she um, and it might have been another one of these great Sally orchestrations of, you know, she called me during one of these midnight calls at college and said, you know, everyone keeps telling me to write a book. I don't think I can write it on my own, but what if we wrote it together? Mm. And I was a freshman at Syracuse University studying journalism, and I immediately loved this idea. And the next time I was home on break, we sat on my bed in my childhood bedroom and we started mapping out the chapters. Like we knew we wanted a chapter about the night she was diagnosed. We knew we wanted a chapter about this big blowout fight we had a month or two after she was diagnosed. We knew we wanted to write about how our friendship was changing. She wanted to write about how her marriage was changing. Then we were thinking about how can we write it together? And we said, you know, we're, we're going through the same thing, but in two totally different ways. What if we alternate chapters? And what if a reader could see what I'm going through and what you're going through and see what this is like for a teenage girl and her mother. And we always kind of pictured this other mother and daughter out there who might read this book together and be able to see not only themselves reflected in the book, but the other person. So a daughter could read it and understand better what she's going through and then all of a sudden read these chapters from a mother and say, oh, oh my gosh, like that's what my mom might be going through. And so we each set off to write our first chapter. And so I went back to college and I wrote my first chapter about the night she was diagnosed. And she, in between chemo treatments, was working on her first chapter. And then the next time I was home on break from college, we each like printed out our chapters and exchanged them we read them right in front of each other, which was kind of this nice experience because it's like, here's all my like really raw thoughts that I would probably never in a million years share with you, but we're going to do this like leap of faith. And like, I'm going to show you my chapter and you can show me your chapter. And my stomach just did a little flip flop thinking about that. (laughs) It was, it was a little nerve wracking. I mean, I remember us like giggling in that like nervous, excited kind of way of like, what are we about to read? And I just remember her reading my chapter. And in the middle of the chapter, she looked at me and burst out like, I always knew you thought I was just being a hypochondriac. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we had this really big laugh. And it was just these moments, this moment of like really telling another person what was going through your mind at the time in a very unfiltered way. And for me, it was really crazy to read her chapter about her diagnosis because I only ever thought about that night as she and my dad coming home and telling my brother and I the diagnosis. And I I thought about my painful time of waiting that day of being in school and worrying about the doctor's appointment and then being out to dinner with a boyfriend and worrying about the appointment. And 
I never thought about her experience that day waiting. You know, she, in, in her chapter, I read like she's waiting in these waiting rooms. She's waiting in traffic to get to the doctor. She's waiting now in the examination room for the doctor to come in. And like her whole day too is waiting with this dread and anxiety and getting the news. And then she and my dad discussing in the car, how, should we tell the children? Maybe we shouldn't tell them yet. How are we going to tell them? And, you know, I just never would have been able to get out of my teenage head enough to even fathom what that day was really like for her. Yeah, and I'm imagining that as you continue to write these chapters and share with one another, like the door opening to deepening your understanding of one another and deepening the experience of the time that you did have left. How did the end of the book come to be? My mom wrote her last chapter probably a few months before she died. I think she had a sense that her health wasn't as good. She was starting to not respond to the chemo as well. She wasn't feeling as strong and energetic. And she had to have a pretty big surgery in the springtime. And then she died later that summer. So I think the book was almost like an excuse for her to be able to write this last chapter of her life in a way that I don't know if she would have felt so free to write that, mm -hmm. you know, maybe she would have felt like if she did that, it was jinxing her health or, or showing she was giving up or, but like under the guise of the book, I think she could say, you know what, I'm, this is just, I'm just writing the last chapter of the book because I had a thought I was inspired to write it. And so I wrote it. I felt very lucky when I was putting the book together in a way because I I did know what she envisioned as her last chapter. And in the book, I mean, it's verbatim from her journal of what she wrote and she labeled it the end. Mm. Like she kind of knew those were kind of her parting thoughts. So from this perspective, you said it's been 20 years. As Now you're a parent, you're a spouse, looking back, like, what feelings do you have for your 17 year old self? What would you want to share with her? Oh, I would have to have such a long chat with her. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I honestly, it's interesting. My mother-in-law read the book and she's very kind hearted and very wise. And, and she read it and said, you know, I hope you've forgiven yourself for acting the way you did as a teenager. You know, I hope you're not still harboring any feelings of guilt or resentment towards yourself of acting that way. I feel lucky that I, I really don't have those feelings. I think partially because my mom and I were able to uncover like a new friendship with each other during the time she was sick. But I, I feel a lot of sympathy for my 17-year-old self. It's like very cliche, but I kind of want to like go back and give her a hug. Like I just feel so much for what she's going through. And I, I mean, I think any age is hard to lose a parent, but I think at 17, you're, you're not still a kid, but you're not yet an adult. You're kind of somewhere in this middle ground. And especially for me, it was my senior year of high school. I was on the precipice of going away to college and sort of gaining that independence from my parents. And 
to have a cancer diagnosis thrown into that period of time that's already very traumatic and emotional and a lot of highs and lows and was just like a wrecking ball through my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really, I just kind of want to go back and tell her that it, that it's normal, that the way she's reacting is normal, that it's normal to want to run away from your parents. It's normal to not want to speak to them. It's normal to kind of like almost wish to kill them off suddenly so that you don't have to endure this unknown amount of time and this unknown future and this illness that seems so scary. Almost a way of managing that anxiety of the unknown to try to make it certain if I cut this relationship off now, I'll have a better sense of what it might be like to be cut off in the future. Yeah, very much so. You know, wanting to regain some kind of control because you realize in those moments that you have none. How did the experience of having your mom's diagnosis and her death before you even turned 21 in what ways did it shape the decisions you made in your 20s? I think about that a lot. I tend to think of it almost as the game dominoes. And it, it feels like my mom's death spurred all these different decisions in my life. I was really passionate about working in entertainment journalism. And then I kind of felt like this doesn't have enough purpose. This doesn't have enough value. This doesn't have enough of the like deeper things that I want to get at. And so I ended up switching to health journalism. And part of how I pitched myself in the cover letter was saying that I lost my mom to pancreatic cancer. And I'm interested in diving into a topic that's deeper than album reviews and movie reviews and celebrity interviews. I also then started working with students because I saw so much the love that my mom had for being a teacher and connecting with young people. And so now I work at a university with college students. You know, they're around the age I was when my mom died. They're around 20 and 21. And oftentimes, you know, they come to see me about career advice, but then it might shift into being about a breakup that they're going through or a parent who is sick or something else big going on in their life. I'm able to give back a little bit in that way. That you, you have this capacity to understand that there are more than just students who are there to learn, but they're bringing their full selves, which includes the grief and the hardship and the challenges that are happening in addition to their pursuit of knowledge. Very much so. And I try to remind myself that when I was their age, you couldn't tell what was going on with me by looking at me. You know, I looked like a normal teenage girl with an eyebrow ring and <laughs> wrinkled sweatshirt. Um, you know, um, I mean, I think my mom's death also influenced who I chose to marry. You know, I think all of a sudden, you know, in the book, you see me sort of go through three different boyfriend interests. And what I learned from that is that all of a sudden I needed someone stronger, who could really like emotionally strong, who could really support me in my grief, because that grief really followed me around in my 20s. And it didn't go away for a long time. I mean, it's it I don't know if it's something that ever goes away. It certainly feels different now than it used to. And I think a lot of that changed when I got married. And then especially 
when I had children and became a mom myself, now I just see, you know, it's like a window into how my mom must have been as a young mother at the same time that like I miss that I can't have those conversations with her about what her life was like as a young mom. I like that I can kind of envision what it was like just by doing it and just Mm -hmm. by being with my kids and playing with them and laughing with them and being exhausted and being annoyed by them and (laughs) (laughs) all the different feelings. I can imagine that she had too. And it feels like this shared experience with her, even though I can't talk to her about it. What are some of the other ways that you stay connected to your mom? I mean, it seems like from what you're saying, like just living your life is a way that you connect with her. But what are some of the other ways? Um, I still talk to her in my head at night if I can't sleep. (laughs) If something's on my mind and like bothering me and I can't fall asleep, I just tell her what's going on or I ask her for help. And I think that's what I miss the most about her not being here is the ability to just talk to her so openly and freely and in this very like non-judgmental way about what's going on in my life. Yeah, I was just wishing you could still have those midnight chats. Very much so. I guess I still do. <laughs> they are at that same time. I didn't put that together. <laughs> well, Marissa, I'm just so grateful for your book, The Goodbye Diaries. Thank you and to your mom as well for putting that out into the world. Oh, thank you, Janice, so much. And thank you for all the work you do with children and teenagers. And I I really hope that this book might be able to help them. And listeners, I'll be linking to uh, Marissa's website in the show notes and also how to get a hold of the book. And I will just put out there, I shared with Marissa when I first started reading the book that even I've been working in the grief world for 17 years. And it's rare that anything besides um, a video of a puppy that makes me cry. But there I was two chapters in crying. So, you know, read with caution. (laughs) This one might tug on your heartstrings in in a really new way. So Marissa, thank you for being part of the show today. Thank you, Janice. And listeners out there, thank you for being part of our community. We couldn't do this show without you. And if you uh, know of a topic that might be something that we should be covering or a particular guest that we should talk to, please reach out at help at Dougie.org. And the Dougie Center and Grief Out Loud are 100% community funded. So if you ever find yourself um, interested in supporting our work, you can donate easily online. It's just D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G forward slash Grief Out Loud. And there is a blue donate button. Thanks for listening and hope you'll join us again next time.